Hello, you're listening to the Science of Everything podcast, episode 86, The Evidence for Evolution. I'm your host, James Fodor. So in this episode, we're going to carry on from the episode I did way back in, I think, 2011, Introduction to Evolution, that's episode 21, which is a prerequisite for this show, um, where I talked about some of the basic concepts of evolution, how it works, natural selection, the origins of the idea, etc. And then I promised at some point in the future to do a follow-up show discussing the evidence for evolution. And this is that show. I have finally got around to producing this episode. So hopefully you'll enjoy it. I'm going to discuss a number of the major different lines of evidence for evolution, including some natural and artificial examples of evolution, particularly uh, through induced natural selection in the artificial cases. Uh, we'll talk about the fossil record and look at some transitional fossils. I'll talk about comparative anatomy and the molecular evidence for evolution and biogeography. So as I said before, recommended pre-listening is episode 21, Introduction to Evolution, and episodes 34, 35 on DNA structure and function may be helpful for some of the stuff on the molecular evidence, although that's that's probably not as necessary. But certainly I'll be assuming that you have some idea about evolution and what it is uh, in this episode, so recommend you go back and listen to episode 21 if you don't have that. So let's make a start, and we will begin by talking a little bit about what I mean by evidence for evolution and what constitutes evidence for evolution. So the idea here is that a piece of evidence or an observation or something counts as, an, counts as evidence in favor of the theory of evolution if it is readily accounted for by the theory of evolution, but not by rival or alternative hypotheses or theories. So in particular, we're going to be looking at evidence for common descent over alternative hypotheses that do not uh, hold that animals or plants share a common ancestry. So evidence for common descent will be an important focus of this episode, uh, as well as evidence for change of animal forms over time, over the uh, over the alternative hypothesis that animal forms or plant forms have remained unchanged over large geological timescales. And finally, evidence that allelic variations, the, the, the variations in the uh, allele frequencies in, in different populations that are postulated by evolution, uh, evidence that these both exist and change over time as evolution says they should, whereas, again, alternate theories wouldn't necessarily predict any such changes. So those are the three main things that we're going to look at today. Uh, evidence for common descent, evidence for changing forms over time, and evidence for these uh, for the role of these allelic variations in uh, populations. And we'll look at mostly animals rather than plants, uh, as well as a little bit of stuff on microbes. So the, because there are three main aspects of uh, evolution that we can look for evidence for, the different strands of evidence are differ differentially useful for that. For example, the fossil record is mostly useful for showing the change of animal forms over time whereas molecular evidence is better for demonstrating common ancestry or common descent. But you'll, you'll see more about that as I discuss each of the types of evidence in turn. But before we get to that, I just want to discuss a few natural and then a few artificial examples of evolution, particularly of evolution by natural selection. That is, these are cases where we have, in historical time, sometimes in experimental time, observed uh, the change of animals as the result of some particular pressure, uh, selective pressure that's been brought to bear on them. 
So essentially, this is direct observation of evolution by natural selection at work. Obviously, we haven't the ability to directly observe very large-scale changes in animal forms, you know, like the emergence of mammals from reptiles or proto-reptiles, for example. But um, on the smaller scale, we are able, in a number of cases, to directly observe uh, the phenotypic change associated with, with evolution by natural selection. So one, uh, one good example of this is various strains of nylon-eating bacteria that are capable of digesting various byproducts of nylon-6. Now, nylon-6 is a synthetic fiber, and uh, the general consensus of scientists is that this capacity to synthesize nylonase, that is the enzyme that these uh, bacteria need in order to break down nylon-6, is the result of a single mutation that then survived and was passed on because it improved the fitness of this particular type of bacteria in providing it with an additional food source. So this is this is a clear example where a mutation has produced a differential phenotype, that is, a new protein that is able to convey a reproductive or survival advantage on the organism by allowing it to access an additional food source. Another very famous example of evolution in action are the peppered moths uh, from Britain. Now this story is... Uh, has a bit of a history to it. So the basic idea is that before the 19th century, the only type of um, peppered moths that were known were light-coloured. And these, these were a type of moths that lived either, either resting on light-coloured trees or the light-coloured lichens that lived on the trees. But over the course of the 19th century, it was observed that a new dark-coloured variant of the, the peppered moth uh, became increasingly what f- was first observed in uh, 1811, and then becoming became increasingly predominant over the light-coloured variety, until almost all of the observed peppered moths uh, were of the dark variety by the end of the 19th century. And this was directly associated with the Industrial Revolution, and uh, particularly around the city of Manchester, which produced a large number of pollutants, which uh, resulted in the death of many of these lichens and a covering of black, dark-coloured soot over the, the trees. So the idea was that the light-coloured moths were uh, increasingly easy to spot by predators, whereas the black or darker-coloured moths blended into the the soot-covered trees much better and therefore had a a survival advantage. So at the time this was observed, it was postulated, but not directly uh, confirmed that, that, that this was the case. A biologist by the name of Bernard Kettlewell was the first to directly investigate this in the 1950s, so sometime later. Now, these original uh, experiments that he conducted, which confirmed essentially the, the, the classical idea that this darker form of camouflage was uh, successful in reducing predation, uh, particularly by birds, was subject to a fair bit of criticism from the 60s through the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And so there was some controversy about some of his uh, research methods and, and the validity of his conclusions. But more recently, uh, his findings were very carefully and rigorously essentially replicated by uh, another scholar called Michael Majerus, who conducted a seven-year experiment, which was uh, apparently one of the most elaborate that's been done in this sort of area, which, uh, without going into all the detail, essentially vindicated uh, Kettlewell's original results while fixing some of the methodological problems. But the basic uh, original story about the peppered moths does seem to be more or less accurate. Uh, Originally, they were light-colored. Pollution rendered their light coloration of poor fitness because it meant that they were easy to uh, see by predators, and so therefore there was a selective pressure that uh, over time increased the 
population of dark peppered moss over the light peppered moss. And that's since been reversed in a large degree since the pollution levels in those parts of Britain have, 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 have reduced since the late 19th century. So that's a very clear, visual, macroscopic example of natural selection in action. Another uh, very widespread and uh, sort of visceral example of natural selection is the development and spread of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, which is a huge problem around the world. Whenever a new antibiotic is developed, usually within a few years or a few decades, one or more strains of bacteria that are resistant to the antibiotic uh, develop. And th this is becoming an increasing concern about the, whether we're going to run out of antibiotics, because even the strongest antibiotics these days are uh, showing up uh, strains that are resistant to them. And obviously the, the, the selective mechanism is clear here, because if you treat uh, a person or a surface or whatever with an antibiotic, then you are selecting for whatever organisms might exist in that, in that population um, that uh, have any ability to resist that antibiotic. So any mutations that occur that produce a protein that help them resist, the antibiotic will be strongly selected for and thus uh, will have the emergence of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, whereas when before, the antibiotic was deadly to, to all of the bacteria. So that's a very clear and, and uh, straightforward case. Another example of... Um, evolution occurring in a natural environment, or, well, sort of a natural environment, uh, but at least not uh, not directly caused by humans, uh, not intentionally caused by humans, are radiotrophic fungi that have been found in uh, growing inside and around the Chernobyl nuclear power plant since the, the disaster there in, in 1986. So this is fairly recent research, I understand, that's looking looking at a number of different types of moulds that have been found to actually utilize the gamma radiation from the radioactive residues surrounding the power plant uh, in order to produce energy to help with growth. And also, through some means, I'm not exactly sure how, survive in extremely high or much higher than, than usual background uh, radiation levels where other organisms wouldn't be able to. So it appears that some forms of fungus have been able to adapt, uh, again, through through selective pressure to this uh, new environment uh, provided by the uh, the Chernobyl nuclear plant disaster. So again, a fascinating example of natural selection in action in a natural environment. And there are many other examples, of course. These are just a few of them that I've picked out, a few particularly prominent ones. Now, let's move from natural examples of, of evolution in action to artificial examples of selection in action. This, these are cases of artificial selection where humans have deliberately intervened to change the uh, organisms. In, in, the pre, in many of the previous cases, humans were involved, but they weren't deliberately trying to change the organisms. That's the, the difference between these cases. So there have been a number of long-run experiments designed for selective to selectively breed uh, particular types of animals, either bacteria or even even larger organisms in some cases. So one's uh, long-running study by uh, Professor Theodore Garland has been working on an experiment for, uh, I think, a couple of decades now uh, in which they have selectively bred mice to higher, higher spontaneous activity rates on uh, running wheels. And they've been able to evolve mice that run about three times as many revolutions of the wheel per day uh, compared to the unselected control groups. This is over a period of several dozen uh, generations. 
that's quite an interesting example. Another interesting uh, long-term experiment it involves E. coli in the E. coli uh, evolution experiments run by Richard Lenski, and he's been tracking genetic changes from uh, a number of almost identical uh, original populations of E. coli since the late 80s, and uh, one uh, discovery that he has made uh, a couple of years ago is that one of the populations evolved to be able to utilize citric acid as a source of energy, which previously it wasn't able to do. So this is the evolution of, again, the enzymes to be able to metabolize a, a completely new energy source that previously it wasn't able to do. So this is somewhat similar to the radiotrophic fungi and the nylon-eating bacteria cases in the natural environment, except this was done in a lab. And in general, really, any case of a domesticated organism, be it wheat, bananas, pigs, horses, cows, dogs, silkworms, chickens, maize, cabbage, all sorts of different vegetables, grains, and animals um, that have been domesticated have been substantially changed over their original ancestral forms through a process of artificial selection over many generations, many centuries, even many millennia in some cases. And even if the people who were engaged in this activity didn't really know what they would didn't really understand the processes underlying uh, what they were doing, they were really engaged in a process of artificial selection in that um, better animals or better plants were selectively bred so as to produce um, offspring that had a higher yield or that had uh, more meat on them or whatever it be, depending on, depending on the case. And these are all examples of natural selection in action, although in this case artificial selection, but the main point of selective pressures leading to uh, phenotypic changes over the generations, that's evolution in action. So there are quite a number of cases from the natural world and from the artificial world of evolution, particularly natural selection, in action to produce change over time. Obviously, they're not nearly as large scale as the uh, sort of very substantial changes, you know, birds evolving from dinosaurs and mammals evolving from reptiles and things like that. That hap but, but these happen over much longer geological time scales, not the you know, few years to dozens of years to maybe at most thousands of years that we've had um, for these historical cases that we can document. But nevertheless, they illustrate the same processes in operation that then over extrapolated over much longer time spans can produce much larger phenotypic change. So let's look at some of the evidence uh, supporting that extrapolation of these processes from relatively short timescales to much longer timescales and therefore much larger phenotypic changes. First, let's look at the fossil record. This is probably what people think of most readily when they think about sort of evidence for evolution. Although, personally, I don't think it's the most important, but uh, it is certainly an important piece of evidence for evolution. So a fossil is the remains or traces of an organism from uh, a past time period that's become either embedded in a rock or essentially become lithified, that is, the bones have turned to rock through a process of mineral replacement. There's a number of mechanisms that this can happen. But basically, the fossil, a fossil is generally a rock or an impression in a rock that records information about a past organism. Discovery of these fossils can provide information, therefore, about organisms that lived in the past. The further you dig down uh, into the ground and therefore access older and older sedimentary layers where these fossils uh, are found, the further in the past you can discover information about uh, what, what organisms lived then and what they were like. Uh, this has become much, uh, this sort of information has become much easier to extract in the last 50, 60 years or so since the advent of radiometric dating, which has enabled us to provide actual year dates of the age of many of these different sedimentary layers, thereby enabling us to 
paint a much richer picture of the temporal change of organisms in different places around the world at different times and how the fossils map to the different periods in the geological time scale. So at a very coarse level of analysis, one thing that's observed in the fossil record is that the types of fossils that we find change substantively at different uh, times in the geological past. We don't see the same organisms in very recent uh, strata as we do in somewhat older strata, and we don't see the same organisms there as we do in even older strata, and so on. The types of organisms that we see change as we go further back into geological history, and they change quite substantially uh, as you go further and further back. Furthermore, the very oldest fossils contain very few types of fossilized organisms, and they all have a very simple structure, whereas younger rocks contain a greater variety of fossils, often with much greater uh, structure. And that's a, that's a general pattern. All, the very oldest rocks have no fossils in them, and then as you, as you move closer to the present through the geological time scale, you find more and more types of animals and uh, more and more complex animals in the fossil record. Now, this is not exactly a linear increase because there are periods of mass extinction and, and other things happening, but overall, this is a very clearly observed trend. So this is a clear evidence of changing animal forms over time. It just is not the case uh, that the animal forms that we see on the Earth today are the same as animal forms that were on the Earth, you know, 50 million years ago, 100 million years ago, 200 million years ago. More specifically than that, we have in the fossil record found uh, a number of cases, in fact, many dozens of cases of so-called transitional fossils or transitional organisms, which are sometimes called missing links in, in the uh, popular lingo, but that's not really a, a very accurate term. Transitional forms is better, because the idea is that a transitional fossil exhibits both ancestral and derived phenotypic aspects. That is, it shows some traits of modern organisms, or more recently evolved organisms, and some traits of older organisms, or those that date back uh, further into the, the geological past. So, for example, Tiktaalik is a transitional fossil that, ex that exhibits uh, some of the phenotypes of fish and of tetrapods. Effectively, it's a, a walking fish. Archaeopteryx is a transitional form between dinosaurs and birds. Essentially, it's a dinosaur with wings and feathers, so it, it shares phenotypic traits both with dinosaurs and with birds. Ambulocetus effectively is a whale that still has webbed hands and feet and is still fully quadrupedal, so it's a transitional form between uh, the land uh, mammalian ancestors of whales and uh, contemporary whales. Eupidophus is a snake that has two small hind legs and is a transitional form between lizards and snakes. Thrinaxodon is a reptile mammalian transitional fossil which had fur and warm blood like uh, contemporary mammals but also laid eggs like reptiles. These are just a few examples of the transitional f fossils that have been observed, or more to the point, these are the organisms that have been inferred on the basis of discovering these fossils, because these organisms don't exist anymore, but the fossils of them can be found in particular strata. And using these transitional forms, you can then build uh, essentially a tree of life, look at, well, what organisms exist today, and what organisms existed at this point in time, and do we have transitional forms between them, and what organisms existed even further back in time, and do we have transitional forms between those, and fit the pieces together in a puzzle. And essentially, this is what um, evolutionary biologists, paleontologists, this is what they do. This is their one of their big uh, jobs, essentially, to construct this tree of life. And it's still very much a work in progress, but the basic building blocks are there. 
and the pieces fit together and they make sense. We don't observe, uh, you know, rabbits in the Precambrian, for example, Precambrian being a time before um, any vertebrates existed. You don't just find random rabbit fossils there. That would completely break this story of the uh, changing forms of life over time and present a huge problem for evolutionary theory. But such things are not found. It's true that we don't have all of the answers and there are still, uh, all of the time there are fossils found that uh, are hard to fit in or that raise questions about previous classifications, but the, in, in general terms, the, the overall structure of the tree of life makes sense with respect to finding the transitional forms that we expect to find, fitting them together in a, a sequence that makes sense, and having the more derived forms fa found in later strata and the more ancestral forms in, in earlier, older strata, and so forth. So overall, the fossil record provides strong evidence for the change of animal forms over time, and in a change, a change in an order that m makes sense. In a, in terms of progressing from ancestral forms to more modern forms over time. This doesn't by itself directly show that the theory of evolution is correct, that that is evolution by natural selection, according to Darwin's uh, hypothesis, but it does clearly show that animal forms have changed over time. Now moving on from the fossil record uh, to look at comparative anatomy, and this is a particularly strong evidence of common descent. Now remember, common descent is just the idea that different, uh, contemporarily different types of animals originally shared a common ancestor from which they subsequently diverged. And personally, I think that this is one of the, the strongest lines of evidence in favor of evolution by natural selection. And I believe it's one of the main lines of evidence that Darwin used, um, because in, in his time, the fossil record wasn't nearly as well established as it is today. He also obviously didn't have any molecular evidence to draw upon. So comparative anatomy... Uh, was was one of the main forms of evidence that he relied upon to develop the theory. And I still think that to this day it's one of the most uh, compelling lines of evidence. So the basic idea is that you look at the anatomy of different types of animals and make comparisons looking in particularly for structures that are what's called homologous. Homologous structures are those that uh, are similar in some way, but importantly derived from a common evolutionary ancestor. Now, obviously, you can't tell if a structure is homologous just by looking at it, because uh, just looking at it doesn't tell you whether the organisms derive from a common ancestor. But the point is that through this sort of uh, analysis of, of these, uh, comparative analysis of uh, the anatomy of different types of animals, we can make inferences which then allow us to establish that structures are homologous. So in particular, the example that I want to look at here, one of the main examples is uh, the pentadactyl limb. Essentially, that just means a five-fingered limb which is found in all classes of tetrapods. So that means amphibians, reptiles, birds, mammals. Now, throughout all of these classes, which is a very wide range of, of different types of animals, uh, the limb has essentially the same structure at the skeletal level. Uh, there's a, a, pro a proximal bone, so that's the bone closest to the body, the humerus, two more distal ones, the radius and the the ulna, uh, then a series of carpals, which are in humans wrist bones, uh, followed by a number of uh, metacarpals and phalanges, so palm bones and, and the digits. So, so in, in humans, this corresponds basically to, to your arm. Now, the point is, although on outward appearances, the limbs of uh, many different tetrapods are completely different, if you look at the skeletal structure, the number of bones, their relationship to each other, and even many aspects of their shape and connectivities, details like that, that anatomists, of course, uh, study in depth, are very similar across the different types of animals. 
So in monkeys, four limbs are elongated and they form, form a grasping hand used for climbing and swinging trees. Essentially, that's what humans have, more or less. Pigs lose the first digit while the second and fifth digits are reduced so that the two remaining digits are longer and stouter than the rest and form a hoof for supporting the rest of the body, but uh, the other the other bones are largely intact. Horses are somewhat similar. The forelimbs are adapted for strength and support. The mole has a pair of short spade-like forelimbs for burrowing, so they've adapted to use their forelimbs for burrowing rather than, say, uh, pigs for supporting the body, monkeys grasping trees. Anteaters use an enlarged third digit for tearing into ant and termite nests, so they use that for feeding. Cetaceans, so that includes whales and dolphins. The the forelimbs become flippers for use for steering and maintaining equilibrium during swimming. In bats, the forelimbs are very highly modified and effectively evolved, well, not effectively, have evolved into wings. So four digits become elongated and sort of form, and while well, the first digit forms a sort of a hook, uh, which helps to keep the, the wing intact and is also used in, in hanging upside down. And there's many other examples uh, throughout the tetrapods of how the pentadactyl limb has been adapted to the particular lifestyle and uh, survival needs of the organism in question. But in all cases, there's a close analogy of the bones and the, their connectivities uh, that clearly show that there's a that there's a common linkage between these. The, the relative size has changed, and the function for which the pentadactyl limb is used has been co-opted, but the connection between these animals is um, just very clear if, if you look at these, look at a comparison, and I think is very strong evidence of common descent of all of these animals. Uh, another line of evidence from comparative anatomy uh, concerns vestigial structures. These are body parts that correspond to parts, uh, body parts that ancestral species uh, held, but have become smaller and simpler uh, over evolutionary time, essentially because they're not used anymore. They, they've become degenerated, but are still around, even if in sort of degenerate form. The The existence of these vestigial structures is also clear evidence, I, I think, of the common ancestry, common descent of, of animals uh, possessing these with animals that have the, the full form of the structures. Uh, because there's, there's no other clear reason as to why these structures would exist, were they not vestigial from uh, a, an ancestral form. So classic example is the pelvic girdles in whales. Whales have a pelvic girdle and a number of bones attached to that, which uh, essentially are the remnants of hind legs that their ancestors had when they walked on land. These bones, if, if you look at the skeleton of a whale, are completely detached from the rest of the skeleton. They serve no function at all. The only reason they exist is because they're evolutionary, evolutionary holdouts or vestigial structures uh, from from ancestors. If you just designed whales from the get-go, there's no reason you'd have a pelvic girdle because they don't do anything. And there, that's that's a particularly stark example, but there are many others as well. So uh, hind wings of certain flies and mosquitoes, which don't serve any purpose but are evolutionary holdovers. Wings of flightless birds like ostriches, again, which are residual structures from ancestors which which could fly. Remnant eyes or eye structures from animals that have lost sight, such as blind cavefish, mole rats, uh, and some types of snakes and spiders. So these uh, have residual eye structures that are non-functional. Another interesting example is the uh, extreme detour of uh, what's called the recurrent laryngeal nerve, which uh, basically runs from the brain down to the heart and up to the larynx. 
Now, this is a very odd path to take because the nerve could just run essentially straight from the brain to the larynx and it would not be a very long trip. And originally, this is essentially what it did because originally in uh, fish-like ancestors of modern tetrapods, the nerve would have travelled from the brain past the heart and to the gills, as it does in modern fish. However, over the course of evolution, these um, the tetrapod descendants of these of these early fish, the the neck extended out and the brain moved further away from the heart, while the heart itself moved lower in the body. So essentially, the fa- the the laryngeal nerve was caught on the wrong side of the heart and had to sort of make a U-turn around to get back to the the larynx. And the most extreme case of this is giraffes, which have an extremely long a extremely elongated neck compared to their ancestors. So the laryngeal nerve actually extends over four meters down from the brain, around the heart, and up back most of the way up the neck again uh, to the larynx. This is a bizarre way of uh, connecting the brain to the larynx. But it makes perfect sense under under natural selection and the process of evolution because it's inherited this trait from its ancestors. Over time, the length of the nerve has been extended, but there's been no sort of redesign to redirect the, the laryngeal nerve um, in a more sensible direction. There could have been, I mean, that that's an evolution, that's a, a mutation that could have happened. It just didn't. And they, evidently, the selective advantages of doing that uh, have not been sufficient to um, select out for that, uh, for that mutation, so it hasn't occurred. And therefore, we have this uh, r- residual structure, which is very hard to understand, outside the the theory of evolution or common descent from animals that uh, had a much closer connection between the brain and the larynx, or in other words, where this nerve didn't have to trans uh, transverse such a long distance as it does in modern animals, particularly like the giraffe. So a, a third type of uh, evidence from comparative anatomy concerns embryological evidence, and I won't talk too much about this because uh, it's a bit more controversial, but nevertheless, the basic idea is that Remnants of ancestral traits often appear and then disappear at different stages of the embryological development process, which is uh, indicative of the fact that what we would today regard as quite distantly related uh, organisms nevertheless share a common ancestry, which then is sort of manifested in different stages of the uh, embryological development process. This has been noted, for example, if you look at the uh, the embryos of uh, different types of, of animals, from reptiles through to mammals and amphibians and so on, that the embryos look a lot more similar uh, than the, the grown organisms do. Now, it's important to understand that this is not the same as uh, an, an argument about ontogeny, recapitulating phylogeny, which is a phrase that some of you might have heard. I don't want to talk about that in detail, but that that idea was specifically that the process of development sort of directly followed the evolutionary pro, uh, the evolutionary stages um, of that organism, and and that is not an accepted uh, idea anymore. It was it was postulated earlier in the twentieth century and has since been rejected. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm just talking about the fact that the fact that there are similarities evident in the embryos and in the development cycles of many organisms that are not evident in the uh, adult organisms. And these similarities are indicative of shared ancestry. In particular, you can look at things like the development and degeneration of a yolk sac, which even humans have, uh, even though, of course, we don't lay eggs and have not for, and our ancestors have not for a very long time. Uh, another example is the appearance of gill-like structures, uh, the uh, pharyngeal arch in the in the vertebrate embryo during uh, development. 
Now, in fish, these arches become gills, while in humans, they become the pharynx. So, uh, quite different end structure, but during a particular stage in, the, in development, they're quite closely analogous. And again, this is a similar example to what we saw before of initially shared uh, ancestral structures that have been subsequently uh, co-opted for different purposes by, by different organisms, depending on the selective pressures and the environments uh, inhabited by that the organism in question. So all of these cases of the embryological evidence, vestigial structures, and the comparison of uh, organs like the pentadactyl limb uh, clearly points to the fact that animals uh, that today we would regard as well, you know separate species but even different orders and classes uh, nevertheless share a common ancestry at some point a long time ago in the past, which is consistent with the theory of evolution, which is exactly what is predicted by the theory of evolution. It is inconsistent with uh, other proposals which say that different types of animals do not share a common ancestry. Uh, they would not predict any of these uh, types of evidence, and therefore uh, th these evidences from comparative anatomy, I think, provide strong evidence in favour of the theory of evolution by natural selection over these uh, these alternatives that on which these evidences would not make any sense or, or from which they would not be, uh, they would not follow. Now I want to talk a bit about the molecular evidence for evolution. This is particularly strong evidence both of common descent and also of the development of molecular mutations over evolutionary time. So this is the allylic variants that I mentioned before. So all known extant organisms have more or less the same fundamental uh, biochemical organisation. So they all have genetic information encoded by DNA and they all transcribe that into RNA and then use that to make proteins uh, by the ribosome. Uh, the ribosome has very similar structure. Well, the, the structure is pretty much the same. Um, in terms of the sequence, it's very similar all throughout life. The genetic code is pretty much the same for every organism. There's a few small variations, but basically it's the same. Uh, this is the way in which the order of nucleic acids in the, the DNA is um, translated to correspond to the order in which amino acids are added when, when producing a protein. Uh, go back to previous episodes on uh, on these sorts of topics if you're unclear what I mean by that. But the the code, the, the translation between DNA and uh, protein, essentially, is essentially exactly the same uh, all throughout life. And there's no reason necessarily we should observe uh, these sorts of commonalities if, if different forms of life had different origins. There's no particular reason the genetic code would have to be the same, because, I mean, you could have any genetic code, really. Uh, the fact that they are all pretty much exactly the same is strong evidence that all life is uh, related to each other. But we can get even uh, more fine-grained than that and look at particular DNA sequences and allow and compare the DNA sequences of different organisms. And what we find is that organisms that uh, were closely grouped with each other by traditional taxonomy also share uh, similar DNA sequences. So humans have a, a, a most similar to chimpanzees and then still quite similar to gorillas, a bit further removed from bonobos more closely related to other mammals than we are to reptiles, more closely related to reptiles than we are to invertebrates, and, and so on. So we find a pretty close mapping between um, genetic sequence uh, comparison and sort of phenotypic traits. Now that in itself is perhaps not evidence for evolution, because you might just say, one might say that molecular similarity or DNA sequence similarity is just replicating a phenotypic similarity. After all, if the phenotype is determined by the, the genotype, then this is what you would expect. Phenotypically similar organisms to also be genotypically similar. 
That's not necessarily always true, though, because there are many different ways, in, in many cases there are many different ways of achieving the same phenotype with uh, different genetic codes, either because of because of the fact that the the genetic code is redundant, so there are different ways that you can get to the same protein, different ways that you can have different sequence but get to the same protein in the end, and there are different proteins that you can have which have similar functions. So it's not necessarily true that similar phenotype would, would necessarily result in similar genotype if it weren't for the fact that, um, we, that, organisms, um, that organisms share a common ancestry. But there's also the fact, and I think this is the most persuasive fact, that um, parts of the, the genetic sequence that don't code for proteins, and in particular that are known to have been inserted in there, you know, into the genetic code, without any particular uh, advantage, survival advantage to the organism. So, for example, endogenous retroviruses. Essentially, these are viruses that insert themselves into the genome and then just stay there and are passed on to the next generation that, from um, those that received the original infection. So the, the viral genome just sits in the genome and is subject to mutation over time, but it's not performing any function. It's not really contributing to phenotype in any way. So there's no reason why, uh, say, the sequences of endogenous retroviruses or other similar non-coding sequences should be similar in um, different organisms, even if those organisms have a similar phenotype, because it's, it's not contributing to phenotype. The only reason you would expect to see similarity in these non-coding sequences is because of common ancestry. That is, some time back in evolutionary uh, history, an ancestral organism received this, uh, was infected by this retrovirus, for example, or uh, had some other mutation in non-coding DNA, which then was passed on to its offspring. And later, uh, at some point later on, uh, its offspring uh, split into uh, different species, and there was uh, subsequent uh, differential evolution in in each of the the descending lines, so that the further back in history the speciation event occurred, the more succeeding time there has been for divergence in these non-coding regions. Uh, Therefore, you would expect to see, under this hypothesis, you would expect to see non-coding regions of DNA have uh, strong similarity in closely related organisms and less similarity in, in more distantly related organisms. And this is indeed precisely what we observe. And there are a number of cases of these that have been looked at in cats, for example, and, and comparing humans and chimps looking at uh, endogenous retroviruses in particular to look at how much divergence there has been between the copies of the, the these retroviruses that we have versus the chimps have, etc. So again, the basic idea there is that under the theory of evolution by natural selection, the more closely related two um, two species are, the more uh, the the more similar their genetic sequence should be in cl- both uh, coding and non-coding sequences of DNA, because both are passed on and subject to mutations over time. You expect the coding sequences to be more uh, strictly conserved over time because they perform a function, and non-coding, non-regulatory sequences to not be as well conserved because they don't necessarily perform a function. Some non-coding sequences do perform important regulatory functions, but there are also plenty of non-coding sequences of DNA that don't perform any function, like these retroviruses that have been stuck in there, for example. So that's the ones I'm talking about here. So under evolution by natural selection, you expect these to be, you know, most similar in humans and chimpanzees, less similar in humans and bonobos, and less similar again, humans and dogs, and, and so on. Whereas, absent the theory of evolution by natural selection, whilst perhaps we would expect phenotypically similar organisms to share coding DNA, there's no reason to suspect or expect why 
phenotypically similar organisms would also share non-coding DNA because the non-coding DNA doesn't contribute to phenotype. And therefore, the only reason that it would be similar across these organisms is if the organisms were actually related to each other, not just because they look similar to each other. Okay, so that's the molecular evidence for evolution. There's much more that can be said there, but I I think uh, I've illustrated some of the main points. The final uh, line of evidence that I want to discuss briefly is biogeography. And this is evidence for changing forms of animals over time, of life forms over time, and also of common descent. So the basic idea of biogeography is that we can compare the types of fossils that are found, not just in different periods of time, but also in different parts of the world, and then compare that to uh, the processes of continental drift and and other geographic changes that have occurred over the past, and uh, sort of make maps of where organisms are found, and compare that to the, the constructed evolutionary histories and see if they match up. So one thing that you would expect if evolution uh, by natural selection uh, is is a correct theory is that populations that have been isolated, say on an island, for long periods of time should have more time to diverge and therefore become more different uh, than organisms um, on the mainland, say. And indeed, this is what we observe. We find many examples of species that are endemic to just particular islands, especially something like a flightless bird, that moa in New Zealand, or lemurs in Madagascar, Komodo dragon of Komodo. We only find these on particular islands or chains of islands and not elsewhere. Now, there's no particular reason that you would expect that unless there has been a change over time such that originally, you know, the the ancestors of the organisms that came there were found uh, multiple places. Then there was a separation of land masses or the island broke off or whatever. And then there was differential uh, selection over time so so that the mainland and island populations changed over time and hence forming the distinctive island populations that are not found, uh, island species are not found anywhere else. Likewise, we also find that different continental regions have uh, particular endemic types of of animals that are not found elsewhere or that are different elsewhere. So Africa has old world monkeys, apes, elephants, leopards, giraffes, whereas South America has new world monkeys, cougars, jaguars, sloths, llamas. And there's an analogy between those different types of organisms, you know, between old world and new world monkeys, between leopards and jaguars and so forth. There's a similarity between the... uh, ecological niche uh, that these different organisms fill. And so if, it, if the emergence of animal types was purely determined by you know, the climate or the ecological niche, it's not clear why there is such a regional difference say, between old world and new world monkeys. Why don't you find only one type of monkey in Africa and in comparable regions of South America? Um, it's not, there's no explanation for that except under the theory of evolution, which explains why uh, you have different types of monkeys in the different places. Because uh, a long time ago, the continents were together. Uh, when the ancestors of monkeys evolved, they spread throughout regions that are now Africa and now South America, but then those regions divided from each other, and then the two um, branches were separated from each other, and one lot evolved into Old World and the other into New World monkeys. And there are many other examples of this as well. So if you look at succulent plants and cacti in the deserts of North and South America compared to Australia, there are differences in, in populations there. Another example from Australia, the different animal uh, native animal fauna of Australia compared to similar latitude and, and um, geographical regions of South Africa and South America. You have marsupials like kangaroos in Australia, whereas they're not really found anywhere else. Uh, again, there's no clear reason for that other than the fact that Australia has been isolated from the rest of the world for a long time, and therefore there's been more time, more evolutionary time for its uh, native fauna to become more distinctive. 
Penguins are another example. Penguins are only found at the South Pole, despite very similar climatic conditions at the North Pole. Again, the geographical separation combined with evolutionary pressures over time provides a natural explanation for why this is the case. And again, there are many other examples that I haven't discussed here, but just to uh, give a broad picture of the, the type of uh, evidence that can be provided by biogeography. Basically, the geographic spread of different organisms is uh, consistent with what we would expect if there has been both change of form over time and also common descent from uh, initial shared ancestry. It's not consistent with what we would expect to see if the same forms of animals have existed throughout geological time um, and if there has not been common descent of, of different animal forms. It's, it's not clear why we would observe the, the patterns that we do. So, in conclusion, the evidences for evolution range across a wide variety of uh, different branches of biology and, and include natural examples of selection from hi historical case studies, artificial selection from uh, laboratory and um, other artificially selected examples, uh, the fossil record, comparative anatomy, molecular evidence from uh, molecular biology and biochemistry, and biogeography, the uh, patterns of distribution of animals across the world. So hopefully you found this episode interesting. If so, please leave the podcast a favorable review on iTunes or another podcast aggregator of your choice. You can send me an email. Uh, my address is fods12, F-O-D-S-1-2, at gmail.com. Feel free to send me feedback, suggestions of future topics, or just say hello. I always like to hear from my listeners. You can also jump onto Facebook and type in the Science of Everything podcast and give our Facebook page a like. That's a way of uh, keeping up to date about when I release new episodes and occasional announcements. And also it's just a good way of advertising the show to your friends and others who you friends with on Facebook. So, uh, once again, thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>